I think when you once you treat your hobby like a job, uh, that's like a recipe for failure, and that's what happens to a lot of people. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off on a road less travel, never looking back. All right, what's going on? What's up, man? So we're going to get into some ideas, but let me tell you something that I did this week. And I cannot give... I actually have gotten in trouble three different times where someone was like, hey, we had this conversation and you just went and talked to me. (laughs) Well, I'm like, well, I don't... I just... When you and I... The way that you and I talk now is how we talk all the time. Yeah. And yeah. And so they're right. So I'm going to try to keep this one vague. I had this dinner and I was with a guy who has 8,000 employees in China, as well as many thousand in America. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Impressive person. Like a factory Um, or something else in China? Tech related. Just like just some huge company. You, you, If I gave you 100 guesses, you likely wouldn't guess it. It's just some big company that exists and in the tech world. Fair enough. And um, it's impressive, but it's not like a mainstream thing. Okay. And there was this other guy there who made a comment where he was like, China's going to crush us in the next five years or something. And then a couple other people... People love to say that, by the way. Don't people love saying how China's passed up America? A bunch of other people b- pounced on that. And then this guy, it was this guy, he lives in China. Um, I believe he, 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 I don't know what ethnicity he was, but he looked like he, I mean, he's probably maybe born and raised in China. And then there was this other woman there who actually was born and raised in China. And this guy with the 6,000 Chinese employees goes... A lot of people say that. I do not think that's true. And I don't think any of you should ever think that. Uh, he was just saying, he was like, Americans actually work maybe as hard or harder than a lot of other countries. Interesting. Um, and, and also, you talk about this like artificial intelligence and this... Um, it's mostly AI that people... I mean, they talk about China crushing America and a bunch of stuff. But AI is like a, a hot... Thing. And this guy was like, I don't think that would happen. And if and what I think you should do is invest all most of your money into American uh, equities. I think he goes like, I'm just so bullish on America. And this, so it was like an interesting perspective. Have you ever heard that? that it's like the one person who probably knows what they're talking about at the table, and everybody else who just reads shit on Twitter and like regurgitates it. Uh, all right, I'm gonna go with the guy who's got six thousand employees in China. That that makes more sense to me. That's, you know, and, and that was good. I felt great about that. And so uh, it was just an interesting perspective. But we you, have... You love uh, you some uh, pro-America news. <laughs> yeah, well, so I'm also just finished reading this really great book. Uh, do you know who John Steinbeck is? No. Of course you do. Grapes of Wrath? No. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Um, I got a blank here. <laughs> wow. Uh, have you heard of To Kill a Mockingbird? I have heard of To Kill a Mockingbird. That's the author? Oh, my God. Like, John Simon. I mean, it, uh, people are going to make fun of you, by the way. Anyway, it's I mostly this just read Harry Potter. Okay, like, it, let, let's well, be clear. This guy, he was born in 1902, so he's dead. He's died, probably died in the 70s. But anyway, I'm reading this great book about his memoir from driving across the country for three months in America and getting to know America. And it's really funny. In 1965, when he was doing this trip, he was complaining about how Americans are getting out of touch with and are getting too focused on technology and how there's refrigerators everywhere and there's TVs <laughs> everywhere and how there's artificial food everywhere. It's very funny. We've always complained about this stuff. But right. I do love learning about America. I think America's special. I think we have this resi- resilience. And I think the... Yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm very pro-America. So yes, I did like hearing it. But you want to talk about some ideas? Uh, yeah, by the way, Dan corrected us. I don't think he wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, but 
no, he, of Mice he and Man or something. He 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 didn't write To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm saying his work is like it's like it, this. It's it's like did he write Of Mice and Men? I know he wrote like Grapes of Wrath. It's just like a famous like American classic. I'm just shocked the fact that you don't know that he wrote Of Mice and Men. So you know that. So the fact that you you didn't by the know, way I know that as in I've heard those words before. That's all I know about that. Anyways, let's let's go into the stuff I do know about because I feel a lot better about. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. There's no secret formula for customer service, but there is an all new service hub from HubSpot and it's bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible. You can free up your customer support reps time with an AI powered help desk so you can easily support and grow your customer base. The secrets out service hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. And also Bitcoin rally. Thank you. I've been waiting for this Bitcoin pump, and here we are. We're back up. Life is good because Bitcoin is now it like spiked up to almost forty thousand over the last like twenty four hours, forty eight hours. There was a bit of a short squeeze. About a billion dollars of short positions got liquidated, and that caused the price to uh, run up. Because um, are you familiar with how that works? By the way, like what a short squeeze is. So no, here's the like non technical, non super uh, super like nuanced version of it. Basically, when you have a short, you're betting against something. And if it goes up, you are on the hook to pay the, the, the sort of the price for, the, for being wrong. And so if you think something's going to keep going up, you're better out just closing down your short position, just taking the L and saying, okay, I'll pay. I'll, I, will, I will go buy the shares now because I'm, you know, let's say I, I was, it's at 30,000. I think it's going down. It goes to 32. You know what? To close out my position, I'll go buy the asset at 32 and I'll eat the loss. Right. Um, but what happens is because all the shorts start worrying that the price is going to run up, they all start trying to close out their positions at the same time. So they all start buying. So the people who are betting against it all of a sudden add all this buying pressure where they have to, to close out their position, they have to buy Bitcoin, which causes the price to go up and up and up and up. And so what happened is as it started running up, all the shorts had to cover their positions because they were massively leveraged, right? They're not putting in their own money, they're putting in like, Five to ten percent down, and they're taking the they're taking ten x or twenty x leverage on their position. So as the price goes up, they're very sensitive to it, and so I think that's what happened uh, to cause the price to go up about ten thousand dollars in the last two days. Is those shorts had to cover their position? This is what happened with Tesla. Tesla was the most shorted stock in the stock exchange, and then as the price started to go up, those shorts, you know, they basically are paying a huge price for every every dollar it goes up. So they start to close out their positions, which puts, which puts a bunch, bunch of buying pressure, which is why it becomes a squeeze because the shorts themselves cause the other shorts to like have to cover. And it just causes the price to shoot up way above what its earnings is and anything else. Dude, this is funny. It's funny because like when you, you do, so we're in this chat group, Sean and me and all, a bunch of other like successful young guys. And they talk about like alpha, like crushing alpha. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah, I got no idea what that means. We talk about short squeeze. I'm like, this; these words don't mean anything to me. I don't even know what they mean. <laughs> you, you guys feel like so sophisticated to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, right, let's talk about some ideas, can we? Yeah, let's do it. You want to go or you want me to go? You go first. Okay, I have one. Okay, here's another one that's crypto related. And you're going to be like, what? Uh, but I'm telling you, this is a good idea. This is actually Ben's idea. So first of all, Ben is visiting me. So I'm getting to see Ben in person. He's sitting five feet away from me. I wanted him to join this, but I had so many goddamn technical difficulties setting up that like, I don't know how he, I could get it to be where it works. But maybe Wednesday, 
we'll take an extra hour beforehand and just get it set up for a two-person setup. Um, but anyways, Ben, we and Ben were talking last night. He's like, you know, one, we're talking about courses, right? Because, and I could share kind of like how, what the numbers, re, re, like I just finished my course. I can share what the numbers were on that. But we're talking about other other potential courses we could do. Like what would be fun? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, we're not the right people to teach this, but I think this course would crush right now. So Sam, tell me, do you know what solidity is? If I say, oh, solidity. So, no, so, when I saw so, you writing, I thought I thought it was a typo for uh, <laughs> solidarity. Yeah, right. Solidarity is what we we'll call it. So solidity is the programming language that you use to write smart contracts for Ethereum. So let's say uh, like one of the most promising things about crypto is that you can write a smart contract. So think like a basic escrow contract. I buy a house. You're going to give me the title. I'm going to give you the money. I don't want to give you the money first. You don't want to give me the title first. So we use this third party, this escrow agent. We pay them $5,000. Basically, you hand them the title. I hand them the money. They say, yep, they're both here. And then they give it to each other, right? So in the real world, we pay these exorbitant middleman fees. I, I don't know what you paid for your house when you when you bought it, or you just did another real estate transaction. I don't know what you're paying for escrow. I don't even, I didn't even for look at it. For I don't me, even, it was like four, four grand to do an escrow transaction, which sucked. I was like, this is just $4,000 sold- for nothing. When I sold my business, I think the escrow was $50,000. Right. Crazy. They think it's crazy. So, and, and they literally do like one ounce of work. Um, they literally just, oh, you hand me the title and you hand me the money. Great. I'm going to just turn one hand over here and I'll give you that. You'll give you this. I'll give them that. So a smart contract basically says, look, we don't need this like person in the middle and we don't need to pay them $4,000. Let's just make a contract with some rules and we'll just, instead of writing it like a, lawyer contract will write it like a programmer contract. The programmer contract says, hey, when this wallet has this much money in it, person A has fulfilled their obligation. And when this wallet has this asset in it, person B has fulfilled their obligation and then release the assets to each other. Um, and so, and instead of paying $4,000, you can pay $4 or $40, whatever the gas fees are at the time. So that's smart contracts. So what, what that means is a lot of jobs today that go to lawyers are going to go to programmers because you're not going to want a lawyer to write a contract for something. You're going to want a programmer to write it down, but you need that contract to like work. It needs to be like solid, bug proof, hack proof. And like, I needed to do the many things that I need my, my transactions to do. So there is an extreme shortage right now of smart contract developers, of developers who know how to write in this new programming language and write these types of contracts. But it's clearly like a big part of the future, in my opinion. And so one idea here is to create basically a bootcamp that takes an existing engineer and says, hey, cool. Oh, you write JavaScript or like, you know, you're a, you're a backend engineer. You're one of like 10 million. Um, why don't you come over here where there's this high demand, high shortage of engineers that know how to do this thing? I could train you in six weeks to learn how to write like smart contracts and solidity and then go to all the companies that are trying to hire this and basically do a Lambda school. I think you can do a Lambda school that's really niche, really focused. And if I'm an engineer that like, I'm a crypto nerd, this is a business that I think you could do. You could just train other engineers to like learn how to write smart contracts and then get hired and placed in these jobs that you take the placement fee. What do you think of that? So I'm doing research while you're talking. All right. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I, I agree with a lot that you said, except for the last part. So... There's this company called Coursera. Have you heard of Coursera? Of course. Um, so they were started in 2012, and I believe that they were started because the two guys, I think they worked at Google, and they're noticing that we are struggling to hire a particular type of engineer. I'm just this is just off memory, so I, I might be a little bit off here about some of the stuff. But anyway, they uh, 
And so they built like these courses and they built it so people can get jobs at Google. Right. Let's uh, maybe say data science or machine learning or something. Yeah, it was some type of data science or machine learning. I, f- I forget exactly what it was. And they, they came out of the gate and they crushed it. And then like over the last five years, they kind of like went nowhere and kind of like, it's like, what the hell happened to that company? And they're not really doing that well anymore. Well, over the last year and a half, two years with COVID and a bunch of other stuff, they started crushing it. Do you know what uh, Coursera's revenue is now? No idea. So they uh, they went public. Did you know that? No. Yeah, a lot of people didn't know it. We I didn't talk about. I thought they had like stagnated and like wasn't that's going what anywhere. Thought. Yeah, <laughs> that's what everyone thought. So in 2020, they did about 300 million dollars, or sorry, my bad, 400 million dollars in revenue, and they're currently publicly traded at a five and a half billion dollar valuation. Wow, and wow, hot damn! Yeah, crazy, right? Totally forgot about it. And what you did with your course? What? Well, I don't know if you did this, but what a lot of people in like you and me. We'll do courses and we'll kind of do these kind of like bootleg things, not yep. bootleg, but like, yeah, it's you like are a literally, yeah. And you'll charge like $300, $300 or something yeah. like that, which I've done before. And that makes things a little bit, and you want like a person to buy it. And that thing makes things a little bit challenging. What I would do is I would take the thing that you're describing and with this, with Bitcoin, there's like all these crazy new things that you've got to learn really quickly. I would just copy the Coursera model and just churn these fuckers out and charge like, <laughs> $8,000 and it's like we're going to like a company needs to buy it in order to train their people. Well, I would just do so, so, so I think that's Lambda one. for X, I would do Coursera for X. Okay, I think that's fair. The thing with the Lambda side which is basically I think every time you place one of these engineers that's like a 20 to $25,000 fee that you get. And so it doesn't take much to be I don't I wouldn't do this as like a venture scale business, not not at all. This is basically I'm a developer who you have to be the right mold. It's like, I've been tinkering with smart contracts for the last two years anyways. I've actually kind of like gotten up to speed myself. I'm a converted backend engineer who now does smart contracts. And I could go, I, I work at like a fang company today. I make $400,000. But like, wouldn't it be great to make like $4 million a year? And I think this is a way to make $4 million a year as like a, a two-person company, basically. That's just, I agree, you know, but this. I would never do it in a Lambda. So when Sean says Lambda school, he's referring to it's free. And you make money by getting like a $25,000 referral placement or, so, or a percentage of their Income. salary. I have I know nothing about Lambda other than we had Austin on this show. And I think he's amazing and I love him. And you're an investor. That's really all I know about it. I think my prediction, if I had to bet money on it, is that it won't work. Yeah, I, think um, that's a, I mean, I think that's a fair prediction about most startups. I think that's true. Uh, well, but- yeah, but they're not most startups. They've raised like $100 million probably. They're not like an early stage startup. They're like in the thick of it. I think that if they're out of business in two years, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. And I would agree with that. Even as a fan and an investor, I, I would agree with that. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, If you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives. I thought it's pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I think that, that, okay, so here's, okay, let me do two things. First, let me share with you a really hilarious story. Do you know this Twitter account, Greg? It's like Greg, 955-326-7897. Is it a white guy? Like Like a white old guy? 
It's a white, no, not old guy. It's a white, like nerdy dork guy. No, I don't know it. <laughs> you haven't seen this? Just Google search Greg meme, uh, Greg meme account. Uh, you'll see it. And I bet you've seen this guy. So, you know, like these meme accounts. So there's like Do- Dr. Park Patel, by the way, big fan of him. I think he's a big fan of us. Uh, he works for the hustle. You know that, right? Dr. Park Patel works at the hustle. Yeah, oh we my pay god, him. you just yeah. outed Dr. Park Patel. Amazing. No, 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 no. He like him, he, he's a contractor for us. He writes for us sometimes. Oh my god, I love it. Wow, no, like, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so okay. like we, uh, my brain is racing to figure it out who it is now. Okay. No, I, he's <laughs> not like like I was a fan of his and I DM'd him and I was like, oh, hey, you want to so write? So you don't know the real identity. Uh I do. Okay, you do. But it's yeah. It, so you're saying yeah. after you saw Dark Part, then you contracted. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Makes way more sense. So, anyways, what he one thing he does is like every time Chamath tweets, he's like the first reply, and he's like just says that like like I'm proud of you, son, or something like that, like something like yeah. totally non-standard. So Greg does that with like Kylie Jenner and like other people like that, where every time she posts something, he'd be like, "Babe, why didn't you like you didn't call me?" Or like <laughs> be like be like, "I'm so proud of you, babe." <laughs> so it's like as if they're dating and so he's this like dorky looking white guy account and uh so the other day do you know who jose canseco is of course ben told me the story so so jose canseco the base former baseball player tweets out uh, i need a i need a smart contract developer for a new token a token developer for a, a new token i'm gonna launch it's just like the classic thing for like paris hilton and Jose can say these like, like you know, anyone know any good designers has been has been celebrities that are like ready to la- launch their own crypto token. Here we go. That what could go wrong? So so Greg replies, and Greg's like, uh, like whatever, like me. Ben, what did he say? What did he, what was his reply? Was it just like pick me something like that? Uh, oh yeah, he goes, hey, it's Greg. DM me. How can I help? And Jose replies and goes, um, <laughs> he goes, awesome. Like, are you a token developer? And then, like, are you are you a developer? Or a smart, can, do you know how to do token development? And then Greg just replies, "No way, Jose." It's <laughs> like two hundred thousand likes on that tweet. It's just like one of the most liked tweets That's on Twitter. Stupidest shit ever. And it's just like so good, so dumb. Uh, but anyways, this guy's like crushing it right now. Like he's got like I don't know, hundred and something, hundred thirty. What's his handle? Well, it's the funny thing is, you know, when you sign up for Twitter, let's say you type Sam, it'd be like Sam's yeah. not available. Would you like Sam? 800,006, because that's like the next one available. So his is Greg, and then it's like 12 numbers that are like the whatever the default thing would be. So it's like you would never think it's going to go viral. Yeah, it's Greg 16676, whatever, like, you know, like 10 numbers long. Wait, so what does this have to do though with? Okay, so that was just my smart contract uh, token developer uh, tangent. My next idea, if you're ready to transition, um, I am. Is, <laughs> is, um, unbundling a piece of YC. So YC does a few things for founders. YC puts a stamp on you. It says, this is a YC startup. So all of a sudden your valuation is going to go up, blah, blah, blah. They kind of coach you. So they say, oh, you know, come in for office hours. Tell us about your idea. Maybe we help you pivot your idea. Maybe we help you stay focused on growth or, you know, how to like tweak it so you grow faster. And they do that for three months. And then, then they start working on your pitch. And then there's demo day, which is like, we're, you're going to get to stand in front of investors. You've got to give a one-minute pitch. You're going to raise money. And that works. So they have like whatever, 120 startups a year now or something doing that. Um, but another, another kind of like course, quote-unquote course, I'm very, I was brainstorming. I was like very interested in working backwards from 
what's a course where the person gets a clear outcome? So this is part of my learnings of like doing a course, which is people don't buy a course for learning. They buy some change. They buy a transformation for themselves. And so like, you know, for a startup going from unfunded to funded or like, you know, no name to like, oh, stamp of approval, that's like actually a big change. And so one one transformation and one change that people would buy is getting their first round of funding. It's like, I'm not just going to teach you knowledge that you can may or may not use. It's like, I'm going to help you get funded. And so I was thinking, could you, like, I've raised probably $20 million in my life and I've helped a bunch of founders raise money. And I think I'm pretty good at storytelling. So I was like, I think I could help a founder who's got no, no funding today get funding in like a one month period. And I think I could basically just sit you down with the deck, with your story, and then basically say, cool, like there's a pretty intense workshopping of your deck and your story to get that to be as good as it's going to be. And then there's like a bunch of angel like introductions and like teaching you how to manage your pipeline so that you run this like a process, like a bidding war, unlike what most people do, which is they kind of try to date one investor at a time and they go kind of slow and they fear rejection and they don't know how to reach out and all this stuff. I can teach you the kind of like the sales process of investing. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, you could do this like on a success basis. So again, like Lambda, which you don't like, but uh, honestly, you could align your incentives, which says- no, by the way, I like Lambda. I just think the business model is silly. I think because the thing with education is that most people will never benefit from what you're telling them. Right. Well, that's the, in some ways, that's the beauty of Lambda, but it's also the bad side of Lambda, right? The beauty of Lambda is their incentive is aligned. So let's say most courses, like let's say for my writing course, I don't care if you're good at writing, bad at writing, and I really don't truly care if you're going to do it or not because I get paid either way, right? Like I'd love for you to take the course and have a big benefit, but the reality is like my financial incentive is not such that if you don't if you if if you don't hit your goals, it doesn't really make a financial difference to me. Whereas for Lambda, it does. They have to select people who are gonna be able to succeed, and then they only make money when somebody gets what they want, which is a high paying job. So that's the beauty of Lambda, but it's also the hard part about scaling Lambda. What- what, so, what were what were the results from your course though? Like, okay, what, did well, that go well? Uh, it went well. It, so basically, okay. So here's the kind of the, like the learnings from my course. All right. So can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah, yeah. We'll do it on each category. So first is let's just start with the most interesting one: money. How much money do you think I made doing this course? And by the way, well, let me get the context. I taught a course on power writing, which is basically writing to get a result. So like the writing I type I do, which is like. If I'm writing an email, it's because I want somebody to reply. If I'm writing a landing page, it's because I want somebody to click the buy button. If I'm writing a tweet storm, it's because I want people to share it. And like the stuff you learn in school is not the stuff that that actually works in the real world. And so it's like copywriting plus plus. So that's the that's the course. All right. So I do this. 150 is my guess. 150,000. Very close. So I did 127,000 of top line sales. And then let's just break down the, the PL. So so then there's my cost of making the course. So I basically had a guy do like custom illustrations and graphics and things like that. That'd probably be eight to 10,000. 7,500. Um, and he was amazing. And he was really good. And so I'm like, I love that. That was, that was worth it. Then there's Maven's fee. Uh, so Maven's fee is on the top number. So I should take that out like first. like 10%. 10%, right? So, so take out 12 grand roughly from 127. Then you take out 7,500 of cost production and everything else. Oh, then there's payment processing fees. That was another four, three or four grand. And so my net was like one oh, I'm, I'm doing the math bad here, but I think it was like one oh five roughly. Um, and then, okay, so so that's kind of like, that's the the money in. 
And so that was off of 320 students. I charged at, I, the first batch I did at half price. So I charged, I think, $450 or something like that. Uh, $400 maybe it was for the, for the course. Uh, and if I had to bet, did you, did you do like an MPS? Yes. I would bet it was like out of 10? Out of 10. So for those who don't know, net, net promoter score, basically you ask one question to your audience, which is how likely are you to refer this to a friend on a scale of one to 10, 10 being, I, you know, I absolutely will refer, I would absolutely refer a friend to this one being no way. 7.3. 9.1. That's amazing. But, Most you know, everything is but in it's the a little bias, right? Because some people didn't reply to the survey. So I, I'm assuming the people who really didn't give a shit also didn't reply to the survey. So I gave myself a true NPS of probably eight, but it was a 9.1 on the, the stats. So do you think people loved it? I think people loved it. Uh, the feedback was kind of amazing. And then I did a survey of like, what did you like about it? And basically it broke into three categories. It was like, look, I can't, you know, the first one was, dude, two of those sessions were like, like game changers for me. It's like, oh, you're cold emailing one. Like that was great. I immediately implemented this and I got, you know, meetings that I wanted. I booked more sales. Like that one I just, I used right away. Or like the second one would be like, you have one about writing inside of a big company, how to like stand out with your writing inside of a big company. That was, I didn't even know I wanted that. That was a great one. And so everybody kind of had two of the, I did seven sessions. Everybody had like two sessions that they were like, that was the one and the rest was fine. You know, like the rest was good, but like didn't really like those two, I got my money's worth. The rest was gravy. Um, and then I asked people, the other question I asked people was on average, how much value did you get? Like, you know, $0, the price of admission, like a 1x return, 3x, 5x, 10x, whatever it was. And then the average per, the average answer to that was 10x my money. I got 10x my value back out of it. And I was like, okay, for what, I don't know if that's like a scientific question because how the hell are they measuring that? I don't really know, but okay. Downsides. Guess what the biggest downside was? Because you've done a course before. So tell me what you, what do you predict was my biggest, the, the biggest downside of it? Uh, well, does that include logistics? Like quality, like, that, uh, yeah. So I think they'll probably complain about your camera or your sound or the time. Uh, yeah, timing was the biggest one because I taught it live. Um, yeah. And so a lot of people you know, were like, oh, you know, I could, I either the time worked great for me, it worked okay for me, or it was horrible for me because I'm in Australia and that time zone was awful. Uh, so I only watched the recordings. The, the, I meant the biggest complaint I had in doing the course. What was the biggest downside of doing the course? Talk too fast? No, no, no. I mean, like, why, what was a pain oh. in the ass for me? Well, it's probably just way too much work. Yes. <laughs> Complete underestimation of the work. And yeah, it's so much work. I spent probably 50 to 100 hours like making the content, which was way more than I thought I would do. I thought it would take it's me so like much work. an hour or two per session. All right. So let's say two hours per session. That's like 15 hours of work. It was like a full day. It was like an eight hour day per, per session I made, plus like the actual teaching of it. And then afterwards, what I would do is, so I structured my, the one, the best thing I did, by the way, was I think, I don't think I invented this. I'm sure other people do this, but I didn't really know what it's called, but I basically structured the session like this. It was like, all right, you show up. So it's like, Hey, we're going to be here for an hour. The very first thing I do is I say, all right, the promise is this, by the end of this hour, you're going to be able to do this. All right. So that's my problem. That's the magic trick I'm going to show you today. You can't do that or you're bad at it. You're going to be good at it by the end of this hour. And then I basically would do, I'd say, all right, let's say it's a cold email. I'm not going to tell you anything about cold email. Write a cold email right now. And they would all have to sit there while I'm sitting there watching them 10, 15 minutes, write the thing. 
So it was called do, learn, redo. So I'd have them do it. I got that gives the baseline. They would all share it in the Slack channel. Then I would teach them like not everything about cold email. I'd be like, hey, here's the three biggest things you could do to improve your improve cold emails. I'd do some examples. I'd teach them the theory. And then I'd say, be like, all right, last 15 minutes, you're going to redo it. And then they would redo it. And then they would just have a before and after of their one hour session where it's like a really shitty first attempt and then like a pretty good second attempt. And then after the course, I would take one hour and I would just go through as many examples as I could of students and just give them like feedback through Loom. So that was like, that worked pretty well, but it was like kind of intense for me because I'm basically performing a magic trick live. I don't know what they're going to do. And so it was kind of high risk. It wasn't like, like it could, anything could have happened. My wife did it, by the way. Sarah, my wife did it and she sold out. She made 10,000 in like two weeks, maybe. And why did she cap it? Because they told me to cap it and I didn't cap mine. She's not like you and me. This is her first time doing like a public facing thing. Right. Um, You know, you and I have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of hours of like riffing under our belt and like we know how to perform. She she's just learning and, and trying to figure out how to do it. By the way, one thing you should tell her, best thing I did was I did rehearsals. So for each session, I would invite four kids who were like kind of like 25 and under usually uh, who can't afford the course. And I would just say, hey, you want the course for free in a personal session? I need to do a dry run with you. And so I did a dry run for each of the sessions. And in doing that, I would realize five minutes in like, oh, this is all fucked up. Like I got to change this or like, wow, this is way too hard. What I just asked them to answer they're confused. Like they, no, they, yeah. they don't know what's like doing start. comedy. Yeah. So I, I needed to do those open mics basically to make it work. But will you do this. Do you think this will be a significant income source for you in the future? Or are you going to quit doing it? So I'm doing it one more time and we're going to see how that goes. My, my goal was basically I put the price back where the original price. So nine fifty. So I'm like, all right, let's see if there's enough demand there at that point price point. Cause below that, it's not really worth it for me. I don't think because you need a lot of students and it's a lot of work. So I'm doing it one more time in August. We'll see if it's like good again. I had a lot of fun doing it. So we'll see if it's fun again or if it gets like old for me. But then I also have a bunch of other ideas for other courses that I want to do. So I think I'm going to teach different courses, which is more work, but I think more fun for me. Can I tell you... Okay, so now, by the way, we're talking about maven.com, which uh, this is, the, here's your disclosure. We both have incredibly vested interest in this and I want them to make money Yeah, because we invested in them. Invested. But, uh, yeah. But I do think they're going to have to change. I don't think it's going to work to do... Live courses, I don't think are going to have... It can't be their bread and butter. It's just got to be how they get into the market. That's that's my prediction, but we'll see. Well, I started off being like, I'm going to do it recorded. And I started recording the content. And I it's bounced impossible. off a few people. And I was like, oh, first of all, recording good content takes a lot of time too. So it's not like it was going to save... It saves me time when I... you know, It's scalable later, but it takes a lot more time up front. The second thing was, people were way less excited about me recorded. And I was like, no, 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 look, I'm like, it's me. I'm like planning this out. It's going to be like as good as I can get it. It's going to be edited. It's going to be tight versus me live. And they're like, no, we'd rather just to be you live off the cuff and like not so tight. Like the perceived value of live is way higher. And so I was like, okay, if it's easier for me to do and it's higher perceived value, like that was one pivot I had to make halfway through of like switching to live. Um, All right, let me... Let me pivot to a different topic. Yeah. You maybe told me about this, but I had Jake research it. I, I think you... Did you tell me about Swimply? Yes. Okay. So I like to keep a list of things that I thought are horrible ideas and ended up doing like amazingly well. 
I definitely would put Bitcoin in that category. Like if you told me right. Bitcoin, I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Ryan Hoover told me about Product Hunt the day he was launching it. And I was like, just quit. I, I also thought it was stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you By told the way, me about I have an easy this, hack to do this. Whenever, I just have a bookmark thing on my Chrome. So whenever I see a startup website that I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I bookmark it either into, I think it's going to work or I think it's not going to work. So I have this like, then I can go back like a year later. I can just go click and see how many of those websites are still like up and like doing something. Uh, you know, and I, so I have these bookmarks. Do that. I've had this for like five years. So if I saw this next company that I'm about to tell you about and this next idea, if I saw that five years ago or a year ago, I would be like, well, like just quit. Why, why are you even doing these stupid games? Like this is the dumbest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. So it's Let's explain the it. name's even stupid. It's called Swimp Lee. Is that P supposed to be there? Is that a typo? Yeah. Uh, Swimp that, Lee? Maybe, hold on. Let me see. Is it Swim Lee? It might be Swim Lee. No, it is Swimply. <laughs> it's Swimply. That's it. Okay, so we're looking at a Google Doc. That's that's crazy. I thought that I wasn't sure if that was a typo, but he wrote Swimply in the way, like the, everything. The way I found this, I was just driving and I saw a billboard and it just said Swimply, rent a swimming pool near you. And I was like, what? <laughs> and that's what it is. So, uh, uh, you know, with everything going on, people are desperate to get out of their homes and they're working from their house and they want to get out. And so they go and they can rent someone else's pool, Airbnb for pools. If you told me like, about this four years ago, I'd be like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. This is right next to like go out and rent a dog for an hour. But you're and a believer? I'm not a believer yet, but the numbers definitely show that I'm wrong. So they've grown 2,000% since summertime and roughly fourth. That what's so if you grow four, they've grown 4,000% in a year. What's that mean? 40x? 4,000 is 40x. Yeah. Okay. They just yeah, raised the series. That could be on anything, right? I could start with one and get to 40. That's true. But they raised the series A, which I'm shocked. And who's their, 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 they raised, they, like, raised, so they raised 11 or 10, 12 million dollars. So, so the idea is like I have a pool in my backyard. I can set like a $50 an hour rate. And somebody who doesn't have a swimming pool in their backyard, because that's a big expense, can say, say, cool, we'll rent your private pool. We'll rent your pool. We're going to come swim for two hours, 100 bucks. There's four of us. It's worth it. Like, we, we're going to have fun doing that. And you, like, kind of clean up your backyard later. Um, that's the idea. But, but they raise the money. They raise their money from, like, some ballers, like people who, like, I think I respect as knowing what they're doing. So who? I definitely think I was wrong. Who? Uh, Northwest, Northwest Ventures. They're, I mean, they're like a huge. Um, a huge thing, right? Norwest. Yeah, generic name. Come on, if you're gonna, if you're gonna yeah, but they're fun. like a multi-billion-dollar. They're big enough that I assume that they have employees who like vet. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Uh, okay, so their traffic, like, if you look at their similar web thing, it's pretty nuts. So, like, January, it's uh, you know fifty thousand visitors, and by June, it's like hockey sticking to four hundred thousand monthly visitors, uh, according to similar web. So, similar web, the exact numbers are not right, but the direction is correct usually. And so this thing is like doubling. It's like doubled last month, doubled the month before that, doubled the month before that. So four doubles in a row. And so I got, I was, I was interested in the space because I found a company that was raising money and what they were doing. And the reason I got interested in this company was we had this guy who I talked about this guy named Preston on the podcast. His name was, uh, I don't even remember his last name, but Preston, I think he, the company he started was called Spacious, where they would uh, do short term. Retail space and rent it out for co working. Yeah. There's this other company that I'll find, or I'll, I'll say the name in a second. And what they're doing is you can rent people's homes just during the day for co working. Oh, yeah. I've heard That's, of that. And it starts with a C. What's it called? 
cozy or some, I don't know what it is. Yeah, chill. <laughs> I'm just making up names. <laughs> and again, that idea I thought was the stupidest thing. And then I talked to Preston and he's like, no, these could be legit. These could be huge companies. It's astounding. And so here's a few more companies that, that, that are interesting. So Neighbor is a storage marketplace. And by the way, almost all these I would bet against and I am being proven wrong consistently. Neighbor is a storage marketplace. They just raised a $53 million Series B. iMove is an electric vehicle subscription service. So you can... Um, uh, they just raised a bunch of money. I'm actually on board with that. It's just like leasing. Kazoo, subscribe your next car online. Picasa, buy and own a second home with eight others. That's just a timeshare, isn't it? Yeah, that's And then resort, resort pass. You can share... Uh, uh, day passes to uh, resorts, pools, and hotels. So anyway, kind of interesting. I, I, this space has always interested me because I've been the one saying how I think it's really stupid and it's not going to work. But these things are actually are 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 beating my are are proving me wrong. Right. Uh, by the way, a, a you, you just said something like share a thing, and we were talking about courses. Uh, we had this idea a long time ago. I still think this is a good idea. If somebody wants to do this, I'll be uh, you know first customer slash your minority business partner who does nothing. Uh, besides give you the idea, which is ClassPass for online courses. So I right now would pay, like, if you said, hey, I can bring you a student, but you're going to have to, you're going to have to give it to him for 50% off, but I can get you volume of students and you don't have to worry about getting students. Um, I'd take that. And if you basically, I think you can work out the math where you can basically get, let's call it $100 a month from somebody. And then they get access to like your course, my course, Sarah's course, you know, like 10 other courses right now um, and, and get all of them basically like an all-you-can-eat pass. So I think there's a class pass for courses that could work for online courses that's, let that, me, um, that could exist. Let me keep being a hater, but there's this company called um, Every. Every dot... What is it called? Two. Every dot so or every, every dot, dot two? I think every dot two. Yeah. Um, there's guys doing that for newsletters and the guys running it are great. Uh, his name's Nathan. Really cool, wonderful guy. Uh, I know Nat is a writer there. I like his work. There's a bunch of like interesting, uh, great writers on there. But I think this business model is horrible um, because dealing with how you're going to pay the, each writer seems like a huge pain in the ass, doesn't it? And yeah. if I'm like, you're, you're, if I'm like a big just shot, pay based on uh, who brings in subs. So if your stuff brings in a sub, you get the bounty of that. You give some to the dude, pool. If I'm bringing in subs, like go f yourself. I want to own all of it. Yeah, but you get so you get the majority bounty on yours. So let's say you get fifty percent of the subs you bring in, but you're going to put fifty percent of the pool. So you're going to get fifty percent from everybody else. And so it's a. But the beauty of it is, when you do a paid newsletter, there's this obligation. Like shit, I got to write this thing. I can't write one a week. I got to write two a week. It's got to be good. It can't just be like off the cuff, you know, random stuff. They're paying for this. It's got to be better than normal blog content. So what they what every does is say, look, you just got to write one good thing a week, let's say, because the consumer is going to get value from eight other writers in the bundle, and so that's the that's why this works is for each person they don't have to carry the whole subscription value themselves. Um, they have eight other people contributing to that subscription's value, and so in you return think they just give away some. You think this is going to work? I don't know if it's going to work. I think or the can. concept, at least. You're, yeah, you're I think it can. I think it can work. I think so. basically, I think I'm kind of a believer in that that the Mark Andreessen thing that he stole from whoever, which was basically like most business is just bundling and unbundling. And so I think that right now newsletters are all unbundled, and somebody creating a bundle of newsletters, it'll be like the cable package, and like you'll somebody will say, ah, oh, why am I paying for? I don't want to pay for ten individual subscriptions and. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And instead, if I could just pay a flat 
$15 a month and get access to my 10 favorite writers, like great. So I think, I think it can work. Are you getting sick of newsletters? Uh, no, I have fun. I like writing my stuff. Uh, but I'm, I, I do it on my terms. So like, I'm not consistent. <laughs> this thing I send out every Tuesday, but like, if you subscribe to it, you're like, bullshit. You don't send it every Tuesday. You send it like every other Tuesday at best. And so, yeah, cause I just like, if I'm doing something else, that's fun. I just don't send it. And like, <laughs> you've experienced the pain of my, like, my like inconsistencies or being late and things like that. Like, it's just kind of like the way I operate on all things. And like, you know, the good, the good of it is like, when I do it, like, I'm never just going through the motions. Like, I'm always trying to bring it. But if I don't have something to bring, I don't, like, do it. Or, like, sometimes I'm, I don't send the thing because I'm doing something interesting, but that'll make the next week's letter more interesting because I was doing something interesting. Um, so that's my only way of sustaining newsletter things. I think when you, once you treat your hobby like a job, uh, that's, like, a recipe for failure. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They, they think it's fun to blog, and then they want to make that their career. And then, you know, they make the grave, grave mistake of turning your hobby into a job uh, when, it, when you, weren't, you didn't want it as a job, really. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's fucking hard. As someone who is not... I haven't written them, but I've owned a newsletter company that has sent 365 newsletters times four years. It's very hard. By the it's way, very challenging. I heard uh, a, 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 another newsletter company that shall not be named... Uh, say that, oh, you know, our subscriber base is like, you know, the third largest city in America. And I thought that was just a badass way of saying like, we have whatever, 2 million subscribers, 3 million subscribers or whatever it is. Uh, and I think you should steal that and start saying things like that. Yeah, I like that one. It's <laughs> kind of like, I think the skim was the one who said, um, the skim said, like, if we were a morning show, we would be the number one most popular morning show. Right. Um, Another great way it, of framing. That's part of it's that's part of the power of It's like how it's do you bullshit. take the I same mean, idea like, and frame it? It's a bit bullshit, but it is yeah. It I it is useful, right? Um, okay, um, do we want we want to wrap let's, here? Or do we want to go to one more? One, let's do one more fun thing. Do you have one? Otherwise, okay. I can pick yeah. one. You pick one. Uh, do you want to pick one off your list? Maybe uh, do this Elon filing a patent thing. That sounds good. Okay, so basically. I'm working with Jake, our researcher, to like find different signals and figure out what do those signals mean. And so there's something interesting. I've always been I've always been interested in gas stations because like I we said earlier, I'm like into this nerd about America. I love like nostalgia, uh, middle America stuff. And gas stations are interesting to me because we spend a lot of time there. Like I have fond mem- memories of gas stations and many of the biggest top 100 privately owned businesses in America. If you look at one of the biggest privately owned companies in America, most, not most, but a very large percentage are gas stations. Right. And so by revenue, gas makes up typically two-thirds of sales for gas stations, but it only makes like one-third or less of profit. The majority of profit comes from buying shit on the inside. And Elon Musk recently filed a trademark for different restaurant services aimed at... Um, uh, electric vehicles and, and things like that and for food services, basically. And so I'm very eager to see what Tesla is going to do. And also, I'm very eager to see how the the modern gas station is going to change. And so far... So what are the biggest ones? I think the biggest ones are, um, are Casey's, Quick Trip. I, there's a few more that are the top ones. They're not doing shit. Right. Because if you go to a gas station right now for Tesla, it's still a pain in the butt. The Tesla superchargers are way better. And so I'm very eager to see, and I wanted to know what you think, what is going to happen to gas stations and how are they going to continue to making money? Yeah, so I think there's two big changes that are happening. So cars go electric. 
then what the hell happens to gas stations, right? Um, do they just convert into electric charging stations or is it going to be different because you're charging at home, right? Like I can't fill up my tank overnight in my garage, but I can charge my electric vehicle that way. And so maybe those gas stations, they're just not needed anymore. They need to convert to some other use of real estate. Um, you know, it's like Blockbuster on the corner store when, why would I need that when I could just push a button and stream Netflix to my TV? Um, the second is uh, self-driving cars, which is going to change the game for both gas stations and for um, uh, parking garages. So uh, you don't need as much parking when you have self-driving cars. Most of city real estate is parking, whether it's street parking or parking garages. There's a huge amount that's just parking and because cars are idle 90% of the time. When cars go self-driving, they're not going to be idle 90% of the time. So cities are going to have to like re-renovate basically the, the, the way they use their land because it's going to become totally obsolete. But let's do gas stations for a second. So one theory is gas stations become like entertainment hubs because actually charging a car takes a lot more time than filling up a gas tank. I think even supercharger takes like 30 minutes, right, to uh, to, to fill up and to basically to recharge your, your Tesla while you're like on a road trip or whatever. And so, you know, what do you, what do, you do to entertain people during that time? Maybe they're just sitting in their car using the, the in, in-car entertainment system, but maybe there's something else that you do with food and drink and TVs and Maybe it's a sports bar, essentially, that you turn, turn this into. The other thing that I think is interesting is, um, like, so I'll give my cousin a shout out. So my cousin Rohan has a startup called Stable.Auto. So check it out. Uh, you're not going to fully grok it from the, from the landing page, but, but I'll just tell you about it. So it says company Stable. Spell it. Uh, stable, like S-T-A-B-L-E, like a, like a stable of horses. And then dot what? Auto, A-U-T-O. Um. So, so he started off, what he started off doing was he, he, he was like a robotics guy from MIT. So he's like, look, um, how do I make it where a, a self-driving car, when it, like self-driving cars are going to need, they're great because they're going to drive people around without a driver, but how are they going to charge? Like they have to go to a charging station and then are you just going to have like attendants there plugging in cars and taking them out? Like, how's it going to do that? And so he was creating like, if you've ever seen Elon tweeted this out once, um, which is a robotic arm that would just find the charging thing and would like plug itself in. So it was like a self, a self, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. like as imagine the gasoline pump could go into your car without you having to pick it up and put it in the hole. So he built a robotic arm that did that. So what my cousin was doing was basically, he was just saying, oh, if Tesla's doing that, but then there's all these companies trying to compete with Tesla, I'll make the robotic arm for all the other companies. So like every other company has a different like charging, like kind of like location on the car, how would I make machine learning that's going to find the hole and stick the stick in the hole, uh, basically for for that? And he started doing that, but the problem was, and I told him this, which was like, look, uh, <laughs> self driving cars are not here, so you're building for a future market. Like you don't know when it's going to happen. Like we all know it's going to happen eventually, but like that's a little bit difficult. And so, um, and so, the, and you're also building this robotic arms really hard to, hard to build. So he, he switched to now he switched to something else, which is basically like software. That basically will, um, it, it it basically tells you when you need to go, when you should go charge your when you should go charge your electric car. For so imagine like Uber and Lyft, they have these fleets of electric vehicles uh, that are going to be out in the roads, and that's for sure happening. And so when do you go charge? If you go wait till you're like almost out, you might miss like peak peak uh, traffic time where you're going to like get a bunch of rides and make a bunch of money. Um, you also might go charge when it's really expensive to charge because electricity costs fluctuate throughout the day. 
So what they're building is basically an app that you load into your, like, uh, this is at least the last I heard of it. It's like an app for any driver of Uber or Lyft that has an electric vehicle that will say, now is the optimal time to charge. Go over here. There's a charging station nearby. There's little, there's not much traffic for Uber rides right now. And the price of electricity is low. And so it basically, that'll work while you have human drivers. And then when you have self-driving fleets, it'll do that whole thing automatically. It'll basically say, hey, let's send to this 10% of your fleet to go charge right now. Let's keep 90% on the road and it'll optimize it. So you're like saving the most money both ways. But let's talk about what do you think is going to happen? Where's the opportunity right now? I, I mean, his idea that maybe, I, I think it's far simpler. Have you ever heard of Bucky's? Yes. Tell people What's about Bucky's? it. What's Bucky's? Do you Buc- know what it is? Bucky's is basically in Texas. There's like a, a gas station chain that like people love. They don't just like it. They love it. It's a tourist destination. And it's a destination for a couple of reasons, I think. I've never been to one, even though I lived in Texas. It has extremely clean bathrooms. And they have a bunch of food that people are like obsessed with. It's that, basically like shitty, sh- sugary food, but it has a funny logo and they serve like brisket. It's just like low quality, but fun. It became a thing. Bathroom. Yeah, but it's huge. So I think that it's going to break down in two categories. The first category is just everyday use. I think people are going to keep their shit at home, charge at home, or they're just going to charge while they're in the grocery store. And that's how they... And that's and Whole Foods is going to be the winner. The <laughs> second thing is is traveling. And I think the way that that's going to look is Bucky's. It's going to be just like it's going to be a Bucky's meets Museum of Ice Cream. So when I go to Bucky's, it's a spectacle. I stop there because I'm going to get like a huge soda. I'm going to get maybe something to eat, but I'm just going to look at stupid shit like a Bucky knife or yep. a Bucky book bag, just dumb trinkets. Like that going I don't into need. a Bass Pro Shop, basically. <laughs> it's like going into a Bass Pro Shop or just looking walking around IKEA. It's just a spectacle. Yeah. It's going to be like that with a little bit of museum of ice cream where there's going to be a little bit even more spectacles that are fun to take pictures in front of. That is where what's going to happen, I think. And I think like the shells of the world or whatever gas station, 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven, I actually think could become a Bucky because 7-Eleven has a little bit of nostalgia. Like 7-Eleven, it's kind of, it could be cool. It's like Subway. It's it could be dying. like Vans. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It could, Subway could be, could be uh, the next version of Vans. Yeah. Um, so, so I think there, there's definitely some people that are going to go that route, right? They make it a tourist destination and they have a quirky brand and that works. I think some people are going to go full automation. So like in San Francisco, we had that thing Cafe X. I don't, did you ever buy coffee from that? No, it took too long. It took too long. I mean, it takes like a minute, right? It's just stupid. I thought it was <laughs> dumb. Cafe X is stupid. How could you think that's stupid? That's like, that's so good. So if you, nobody knows who, what Cafe is, describe it. So it's basically okay, but here's the thing. So like, it's basically a Keurig machine. Like, <laughs> it's not that fancy, but it looks like it's usually like it's in a building and it has like this glass around it, and it's a massive robot arm that's making a spectacle of like coffee. moving the co- the coffee cup around and then pouring the milk in it. In reality, it could like you don't need that stupid fucking arm. It could just be like a <laughs> coffee vending machine. Like yeah. I don't, so that's why it, whenever I saw that, I'm like. When I see these like in warehouses and stuff, it's just like you put two quarters in and you just get like a, like at the hospital. You've never been to the hospital and <laughs> use one of those like cappuccino machines. Like I don't need this dumb fucking arm to trick me and act like it's doing something special. Okay, so that's definitely one way of seeing it. And I, I could see that point of view. I think what's the difference between Starbucks and that vending machine? Is it the quality of the coffee or what, what's the difference? Probably not the quality. So what is the difference? 
One's a spectacle and one you talk to people. Uh, no, no, no. So I'm saying like between the Keurig machine and Starbucks, like why do you even need a Starbucks? Why couldn't Starbucks just be a Keurig machine? I like getting out of the house and seeing people. Okay, so maybe, it, maybe it's that. If that's the case, then Starbucks is safe. The other case is basically that there's some middle ground of like variety and quality that's like above a, a coffee machine, but more like a Starbucks where you have like 40 drinks that you want because you want your soy latte with, you know, uh, you know, you want, you want almond milk and then you want two pumps of sugar and you want light ice or whatever. And like, that's how you like your drink. And so, you know, you can't get that out of a, co- out of a normal coffee machine. Either the coffee doesn't taste as good or the drink is not as elaborate. And Cafe X basically says, cool, what if we could serve coffee faster and cheaper than a Starbucks? What if we could serve Starbucks quality coffee, but faster and cheaper than a Starbucks? Why? Because we have a robot arm that could just like do the thing 24-7 and never call in sick and never be an employee, never need, never have any employee like issues. And uh, by the way, I take up one-tenth of the square footage of a Starbucks because it's like a it's like a giant robot in a hamster ball. Uh, it, it, like it has everything it needs right there. It takes up like 10 square feet. Whereas yeah, it's like Starbucks is much bigger. And so what they're doing with the idea with Cafe, I don't think Cafe X specifically is going to succeed, but I'd be shocked if there's not a Cafe X type winner down the road because you can shove these things anywhere. You can shove it inside of an apartment building and it can make sense in an apartment building, whereas like a full service Starbucks with staff wouldn't make sense in, a, in an apartment building. And so I think that those are going to succeed. Um, and so I think there's a version of the gas stations that's like that. I think there's a version of the gas stations that basically is just all automation. The charging's automated and then you go and you push a button and it creates a giant Slurpee for you like 7-Eleven, but it's just a robot arm doing it. We'll see. We'll see if it works out, but I think it's going to be more like Bucky's. <laughs> At least I hope it will be. Um, all right, that's the episode. I gotta, I gotta go get a haircut. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like my days off on the road. Let's travel, never looking back. Like-